This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 15 of Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. And today I have the great pleasure of welcoming my old friend, Meryn Regan, to discuss the performing arts, why we need them and how they affect us. Meryn Regan is the Director of Casting and Events at the Ensemble Theatre in Sydney. She's a radio broadcaster and performing singer. Meryn will be discussing with me why we need the performing arts, their purpose, aims, psychological aspects, especially of theatre, music and singing. Welcome to the podcast, Meryn. Would you like to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I ran my own publicity and marketing company for 20 years before moving in-house to the Ensemble Theatre. So my background is I did a communications degree at UTS and I also did an acting course at the Ensemble Theatre. So I, I did them concurrently back in the 80s, early 80s. Then I married an actor and um, I decided that acting was too difficult to have two actors in the one family. Someone had to be the breadwinner. And so I continued with my journalism degree that I'd done, but I majored in publicity and marketing. So I started my own PR company and took on marketing as well. And then I worked in the fashion industry initially, but ended up in the theatre and the arts, which was my passion. And uh, 20 years later, um, I moved in-house at the Ensemble and I've been their communications director for years. And just four years ago, I moved into casting and events. So now I manage all their casting and their events. And your years of experience as a publicist must have been helpful in getting interviews for actors and directors and playwrights. Yes, exactly. What happened was because I knew playwrights and directors and actors so well through all the years being a publicist, uh, that really helps with my new role in casting because I deal with directors, obviously setting up auditions for actors. And then uh, I deal with the agents to book them for roles and uh, choose you know, the director gets to choose who he wants or she wants for the role. And um, I often make suggestions to them because I know so many actors. And then it's a process of how roles get cast. There's quite a lot to it, really. Um, it's not just someone you know and give them a role. It's always coming in for a read. Are they right for the role? Or a whole series of auditions where you might see 30 people for the one role. So it's a, it's a great process. And a director usually wants the right person for the role, not just their friend or someone they know. It's got to be the, the actor who can bring the best of their own experience to that character. Because you would know directors quite well, do they often rely on you for your input as to who you think might be a good actor? Definitely. I mean, now that I'm in-house at the Ensemble, our main director is the artistic director, Mark Kilmurray, and he would direct about four plays a year. He usually chooses his own casts, but if a role is sitting there and he can't think who might be good for it, he might say to me, can you suggest a few names? I'll go through Showcast, which is a whole book of, it's online now, but of every actor in Sydney. And, uh, you know, it's alphabetical and I just look through it and I or I might do a search with the right age group and then they might have to have some kind of ethnic background or they might need to be, you know, Italian or Greek or Lebanese. Um, and so you can go through and do specific searches in age groups and, and gender and background, cultural background, and come up with, say, 10 names and I'll just send them off to him in a list. And then he might come back to me and say, can you make a coffee meeting for me with these three? 
Do you ever get stumped and just can't find the right person or enough people? Well, no, there's so many actors out there, let me tell you. And and so many of them are out of work and desperate to work. So it's, it is tough. For instance, last week, an actor pulled out of a role for next year because they had another play at the STC, Sydney Theatre Company. And so I suggested a few names of people that I thought would be great for the role. And I got the email back. Oh, they're absolutely lovely. I love those actors, but they're just not right for this role. So then I had to go back to the drawing board and come up with a few more names. Anyway, in the meantime, he's given me two names of actors to check their availability and then we go through that process of if they're both available, he then makes the choice of which one he wants to use. So I'm waiting to hear back from the second one. <laughs> it's a really interesting process and I love it. I can see that with the smile on your face. And I also remember being at another smiling time with your recent second wedding <laughs> and 34 bridesmaids. I did. We made the papers. We made the Manly Daily, which then went in the Daily Telegraph. It was very exciting. Um, look, what I decided second time round was just to have a great day of pure joy and happiness. And a lot of my friends had never been bridesmaids before, some of them even in their 60s. So I just thought I have a big group of tennis friends and um, even some of my girlfriends from high school had never been a bridesmaid before so I just thought everyone can be a bridesmaid if they want to be. <laughs> so it was my sisters, my children, even my mum said to me can her sister be a bridesmaid? She was 85. I said no, I've already got 34. I promised I would only have 27. <laughs> But, you know, like that film, 27 Dresses, that's what the theme was on. But um, my mum did ask my second cousin from Queensland if she could come and be a bridesmaid, so I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you came up with the idea of the rainbow of colours. Yes, well, what we did was we had every bridesmaid had to wear their own dress in their own colour, um, a full block colour. I didn't want any patterns or sequins. So um, most people just chose a dress out of their own wardrobe, which was great. I didn't want it to be expensive for them. And so any colour from pink right through to purple, you know, orange, yellow, green, blue of the rainbow. And then when, we, when I arrived, they all lined up on the jetty at the wharf down in Manly in the proper rainbow uh, patterns. Yes. Yeah, sequence. So it was a whole lot of fun. Best day of my life recently. <laughs> oh, it was just the most wonderful day. Um, and it was tied in with the inclusion vote in Sydney. That's right. That's why I chose the rainbow theme also. I had um, a couple of gay people who worked with me at the ensemble who were feeling very pleased that Australia was voting for gay rights and so and gay marriage and so a, as a salute to them I decided to go with the rainbow theme. Beautiful. So the Ensemble Theatre, um, we've been in a time of pandemic in Australia and in the world. Um, as you said before, actors have been absolutely and other performers hit so hard by this pandemic. But you're back on deck. Yeah, we're hoping to get audiences back into the theatre. So our theatre seats 220. So people should feel safe. There's um, hand sanitisation stations. Everything's been cleaned very carefully throughout the venue and masks will be mandatory. And you've got a couple of new exciting plays coming up with great casts, I believe. Yeah, look, audiences were offered either to donate their money to the theatre because we 
really needed it, um, or to get a credit voucher so that they can see that same play again, or they could get a full refund. And so we were very pleased with the number of donations and then requests for credit vouchers. Most people didn't request a refund, which helped us stay alive through this process. And obviously the JobKeeper has kept the company going, really. Without JobKeeper, we would have had to close down. Remarkable that you've survived it as an organisation. And I believe you're having some special cabaret events. We are. We've got theatre legend John Bell coming back to do an an evening of stories and pieces of poems and favourite bits of plays. And then we've got the amazing Todd McKenney, who is our ambassador, and he's doing one of his casting couch shows where he sits on the couch and he has a guest and he asks that guest about their life and then they sing a couple of duets together and next guest is going to be Nancy Hayes and so she's an obvious legend of the theatre as well and so um, the two of them will do four performances so they'll just be extra special productions and then a couple of the plays that are brand new we've got those three fabulous chaser boys so that's Craig Rucastle, Chris Taylor and Andrew Hansen and they're going to bring back the play Art which is by Yasmina Reza. It was on 20 years ago in Sydney. Sydney Theatre Company put it on. It's three men and it's all about male friendship, exploring male friendship. And so those three boys, they've obviously worked in television on The Chaser for years on the ABC and they've done two plays for the ensemble recently and uh, they're just such a great combination together so we've got them back. And then another new play is Nearer the Gods which is a new David Williamson play that was put on in Brisbane and it's never been seen by Sydney audiences and it's all about Halley's Comet. How wonderful. What a lineup. Yeah. yeah, it's a great season. Oh, so exciting and so welcomed. I think people will We'll be celebrating very much to hear all of that and to enjoy it. Yeah, look, our audiences, we've had such good feedback from them. Just can't wait to get back into the theatre. And obviously safety is the most important thing and a lot of our uh, audience are elderly and so they're very worried about catching COVID and so masks will be mandatory initially until, you know, that's no longer required. And um, a lot of them are going to wait till a vaccine before they even come back. So we have had great feedback that all of them very excited and really miss the theatre, but they are very aware that it needs to be a safe environment before they'll come back. Maren, we've known each other for most of our lives, since year six in in school. I know, that's ridiculous, but we were about (laughs) 11, I think turning 12. Yes, And, and singing was so much a part of our time at school. You know, we sang together in the choir in madrigals, which is like an a cappella part song for several voices. It's quite a Renaissance traditional way of singing, um, typically unaccompanied and arranged in a very elaborate sort of counterpoint. And lots of harmonies, which yes. we all had to learn to sing our part, didn't we, without listening to the person next to you who was singing a different part. And it was such a great education of wasn't music, it? wasn't it? Yes. Back in, in those days when we were only teenagers. <laughs> yes, yes. And a lot of guitar playing and singing at lunch times, at each other's houses, at parties, whenever we could. Absolutely. My sister is a brilliant guitarist. So I, she did teach me how to play the guitar on her tennis racket in the back of the bus. <laughs> And the boys taught her how to play the guitar in the back of the bus on her tennis racket. Uh, uh, She never had a a guitar lesson in her life. She was self-taught, but she still plays beautiful guitar. So I try not to when I'm around her. But when when she's not around, I do play still. And, um, 
Yeah, we've we've been a harmony singing duo for the last 40 years. My sister and I, we still sing around the traps and we call ourselves Sisters Harmonics. And you sing and play so beautifully and you accompany each other so wonderfully. I think those days of magical group and choir at the, at uh, not the ensemble, that's where I went to acting school, at, at high school with you, really helped. I think our music teacher was incredible and um, she did single us out very young as having clear voices that uh, could hold a tune well and as a result gave us great stuff to learn and really instilled that harmony learning different parts in us and and ever since we've just been able to create our own parts. And you clearly love singing, so it just shines through. It's a huge joy in my life and, and, you know, whenever I sit down to start singing with Joe, be it at a family event or performance level, it's one of the highlights of my life, really. And it's great that I get to still do it. The late 50s. <laughs> and it's great for us to be able to enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we have always enjoyed it. We are stuck a little bit in the 70s. So, you know, our music is Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, Carly Simon, Elton John, Billy Joel, that kind of stuff. But we now do Adele. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it is, you know, vocal acoustic harmony, kind of the folk style singing. The performing arts and psychology have a lot in common. And as I was researching for today's podcast, I really was quite surprised at the number of studies that have appeared in the literature about the relationship between the performing arts, particularly theatre, and psychology. In psychology, we talk of ego states or the many parts or many selves. These are like the characters within a person and they make up the live performance that is our life. In psychology, we make more conscious these parts in people and help people dealing with these different parts of themselves, increase their understanding of how these parts relate to each other within the person, how they make us behave or act, and how they make up who we are and how we perform, how we work with ourselves. So I'm often helping people to find even a role that they must be in in order to be in their optimum way of performing as an athlete, as someone in business or in any of their work life capacity, even as a parent. And it was Edward de Bono who talked about the hat that people can see themselves, imagine themselves wearing to be able to go into a particular role in a part of their life where they need that part. They need to be acting from that part more than, say, an emotional part. They need the protection of the role. Of course, the person is still there within the role, as it must be with actors, of course, they're still a person, even when they're acting a particular part. So people go in and out of their roles during the course of their day, and then we talk often in psychology about role power, so that people have power from the role that they take in life or assume or are given in life, for instance, if they're a president of a company, and then there's the real power within the self as well. I imagine as an actor, if you have real power, authentic power in yourself, like someone like John Bell would bring more to a role, you know, if he was to play a powerful role, is it different for someone who has real power to play a part that needs to be powerful? I think actors are taught all sorts of different techniques to create characters. And so someone like John Bell playing a powerful role, he has innate power in his body shape, in his mannerisms, in his beautiful voice. 
But really, actors are taught how to create a powerful character with techniques. And so when I went through acting school, there were about 40 techniques that we were taught to use in order to create characters. And sometimes it's just the stance it's physical attributes. Other times it is your voice, it's the strength in your voice, and then it's the attitude behind the words. So internally, you're creating a character that's powerful. You might feel terrified inside, but you are behaving in a powerful manner on stage, and then people believe you. They believe that you are that character. I wish I knew those techniques. I think I could help a lot more people. (laughs) It's a really interesting book, actually, that Hayes Gordon wrote, and it has all of his techniques. Before he died, he made sure that he had it all there. So a lot of the acting schools around town now use his techniques. And, you know, it's trickery and magic, but it's wonderful. Oh, gorgeous. In the USA, university students often do a double major in acting, theatre and psychology. The two are said to be symbiotic in some studies. The techniques that actors use from what you're saying, Merrin, are often what we prescribe also in psychology to help people in certain roles in their lives. One study talks of a real affinity between the worlds of psychology and the theatre, where each uses the other as a lens through which to better understand its own core concerns, and that jargon from each realm, the theatre and psychology, is borrowed by the other realm and freely used to explain these principles, which is what we're saying today. It sounds like actors delve deep into the psychology and the psychological history of a character. Absolutely, and and they discern their motivation from that. So often with a character, you create a history for them, even if it's not written by the playwright. You can ask, was she married? Did she have any children? How does that affect the way she's treating this person in this scene? So creating a history for that character, and it makes them more real for the actor. And then if they're more real on stage, then the audience believe the character. So role playing is definitely a huge part of acting and um, creating that historical background for a character is really helpful for an actor. So it's almost like the actor goes into the psychology of the person and the person when I'm treating as a psychologist goes into becoming an actor and learning how to act in life. The two are so interchangeable. I think a lot of actors crave that audience attention because in their real lives they're quite needy. Yeah. (laughs) I I think there's a lot of actors out there that really need that love of the audience. And would be maybe partly drawn to to performing for the love that they didn't perhaps get in their family of origin. I think, you know, a lot of actors are quite lonely people. I think a lot of performers find that, you know, sense of identity as well when they're performing, when they're taking that role. They crave the adoration of the audience and so either from the applause at the end or from the comments in the foyer afterwards you know they just love the attention and and anyone who becomes an actor has to have a really thick skin (laughs) because you know the reviews come out and they might you know a reviewer might say your performance was terrible and even directors they get terribly upset if the reviews are bad and so you do have to create a really thick skin also auditions you know you might be going for so many auditions as an actor and you get rejection all the time. Amanda, in our lives, how many times have you had to go for a job interview? You know, and actors unfortunately have to go to job interviews all week, every week. And so they really have to develop a thick skin. Absolutely. Only the very best stay in the field because there are just not enough jobs. And often actors will play roles because they like to hide their own personality and they like to create 
these other personalities and it's you know gives them such pleasure to play all these different roles so no one can really find their true self interesting another study says that actors and theater makers are experts in the art of change which i guess is what you're referring to a bit as well oh, they can be a chameleon you know one one minute they're someone very important another minute they're someone very shy and quiet you know it's just the best actors can play all the different characters Theatre and the performing arts, and in my job as a counsellor, seem to be places where we reconnect with our feelings, we can re-experience things, even release or have cathartic experiences. Is that something you find with acting? I remember in our acting classes, we had to practice the techniques we were learning, and one of them was usury. And usury is using something that's happened to you in your own life in order to create a character and a feeling. So, for instance, if I had to act really excited, I might remember my wedding day. Or if I had to feel really sad and burst into tears on stage, which is incredibly difficult to do, I might prepare before the scene in the blackout before anyone can see me I might remember a moment in my life that was terribly sad for instance the death of a family member you concentrate on that in your mind in the dressing room before you come on stage you get yourself into that whole mood of your father's funeral or you know the death of a baby or you know something terribly terribly sad you get yourself into that moment and then when you come out on stage and you have to suddenly burst into tears you just click straight away through to that moment that you prepared and it all comes out. So that's usury of your own experience helping to create the emotional content of your character in the middle of a performance. In film it's different because obviously the actor can take lots of takes and get into the moment and then be filmed and you know they can do it over and over and over until the director's happy with it. But on stage when you have to burst into tears at that sudden moment does help enormously to prepare in advance for that feeling to then be there for you when you need it. It's tremendously difficult, it seems. That's amazing work. And of course you're taking the audience with you into their feelings. An audience will feel much more empathetic towards you if what you are presenting on stage looks real. If it just looks fake, you know, there's some terrible actors out there that do really bad crying scenes or or screaming matches or, you know, whatever. If they're not very good actors, then it's not believable and the audience walk away thinking, oh, that was terrible. But if the person, the actor, is creating feelings that look real... Even if they're not exactly what's going on on stage, the audience are very empathetic if they look at your face and they feel like you are really going through what that character is going through. So they've just heard that someone's died and they've burst into tears and you think, wow, God, they're so good at that. How did they do that? It's because they've had training and they've prepared themselves before they come on stage. And they're living that live performance. Yeah, and every night is different. Sometimes on stage, you know, one night they might get the full tears streaming down their face. The next night they just can't draw it, draw on it. And and they might not do as good a performance the next night. So it's, it's really visceral for an audience to watch a performance live. And I think that's why theatre still exists instead of, you know, just film and television, because people love that immediacy of the performance that's live and will never be repeated. It is such an experience that we go through as an audience that we are part of. And I will never forget David Williamson's play, The Emerald City. You know, how many years ago was that? How many decades ago was that? And it's still with me because I was so involved as a part of the audience. 
Yes, well, I think that's why people love coming back to the theatre and just being surprised by what's on stage. And, you know, often I'll go to the theatre and I won't even know what I'm seeing, but I just love sitting down and then being surprised and then challenged and changing my opinion on something because of something I've seen on stage. You know, it can be quite educating if the play's about a subject that you don't know much about. And then the story reveals itself and you find out all the different sides to a story and suddenly your attitude might change because of the experience you've witnessed on stage. I find it quite cathartic as well. I find that after I've been at a certain play, I feel changed by it. Yes, and you do remember, as you say, Emerald City, all these years later, if you've seen something that's really affected you, you will remember those moments. I remember I saw Kate Blanchett and Geoffrey Rush in a play called Oleana at Belvoir where neither of them were stars. And I remember coming out of the audience thinking, my God, they were good. Why aren't they you know, more well-known than they are. And then they both obviously turned out to be huge stars. (laughs) But their performances were so incredibly good. And so that has sat with me as one of the best things I've ever seen. How wonderful. Maren, you came back to performing as an actor a few years ago in a big way. And I was in the audience one of those nights. And you were a protagonist or the protagonist? Well, I played a role of a woman whose daughter had been raped and murdered. It was called A Conversation and it was a David Williamson play. And um, David Williamson was in the audience, which was terrifying for me. But as I was discussing using something from your own life to help you with the character, obviously I have daughters. Oh, well, nobody knows that, (laughs) but I've got daughters. And so I had a daughter the same age as the woman in the play who was raped and murdered. She was only in her early 20s. And so I just would imagine that it was one of my daughters that this had happened to. And I had a three-page monologue about the terrifying aspects of life after to her death where I had to go through photographs of her life and talk about them and how difficult it was and my husband was played by Mark Lee he was adorable and um, such a lovely man I just remember that I did have to use elements of my own life to help me get through those scenes and make them seem realistic but it did affect me in real life so I would drive home on the way home from the theatre and I would get so lost in my own thoughts I actually drove back into my old drive driveway where I lived with those children you know they've both left home now my daughters but I was so distracted by the play and where I was I found myself driving into my old driveway of a house that was sold Wow! (laughs) so you know as an actor you can be very affected by the roles that you play and look at Heath Ledger he was so involved in that joker he was playing that he apparently wrote diaries of all these terrible things that had happened to keep him in the mood of being and then obviously you know he's no longer with us because he suicided I believe an overdose and so roles can really affect actors and and you have to be a very strong person to be able to let the character go at the end of the show. Because you really looked traumatised on stage. Well I really believed that my daughter had been raped and murdered you know it's pretty horrible thing to have to try and dredge up and then there were you know photos we had to use so I had photos of my own daughter at her birthday parties and I was talking about going through all the photo albums and you know just having those memories of my own daughter's birthday parties made me look like I really had lost my child yeah. thank god I hadn't oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, and it was a really terrifying role to play and challenging and difficult and it is one of the reasons I haven't gone back onto the stage to be honest I did find it very hard and also you know there's just not enough work out there for actors so I had to go back to my other job <laughs> it's very generous of you to let the other actors have their their chance 
It's it's like a double-edged sword drawing on that personal material. Like life experience helps performance. And yes, you know, performance, as I'm saying earlier, helps other people in their lives. Is it that balance that often actors are trying to tread of keeping the balance of drawing enough on their own material but not sending themselves crazy? Yeah, look, I think a lot of actors have to just let that character go when they walk away from the theatre. Imagine if you're playing Hitler or, you know, a murderer. You don't want that hanging around you. So I think actors do learn to just let it go and go and enjoy time with friends and lovely dinner with their family when they get home from the theatre if they're playing something really nasty. And some people are just very good at playing nasty characters and they keep getting offered roles like that. I mean, my lovely friend Kate Raison, who was in my class in acting school years ago, she told me she continually gets bitches. (laughs) (laughs) She gets cast as the nasty bitch and she's not at all like that in real life life but she does have this powerful manner and can play very strong characters so she does keep getting cast in those roles oh how wonderful Marin, you were always into acting as well as singing and I remember you starred in the final musical at high school oh I did a couple of big musicals at school we were in Guys and Dolls and then West Side Story Absolutely loved those years and it did start my passion for acting and singing. My mum obviously was a huge influence on me. She ran the Ensemble Theatre for 30 years so when I was growing up she was still studying under Hayes Gordon who was running the theatre then and then she took over when he retired and so she'd done his three-year acting course and so I decided I needed to do that too. And um, look, acting and the techniques I learnt from learning how to be an actor have really helped me in all aspects of my career. Now that I'm on radio as a broadcaster, you have to have a good voice, you have to speak well, you have to think quickly, you have to be able to chat and do interviews. You know, so I did journalism degree as well and that gave me the background of being able to learn how to be a journalist. So everything I've done in my past has helped me with what I do today. Actors must have to develop a lot of resilience in order to be playing the same role over and over each night. Yes, well, I mean, some plays only last for six weeks, but some roles might last for three years. You know, you look at someone like Marina Pryor or Anthony Warlow, who play the lead role in a musical that runs for years. That would be tough to come back to that same role every single night, but they love it and that's you know, the audience adore them and they're really good at it and so that's what they do. But in the theatre, plays usually only run for three months, but still, it's eight shows a week coming back to do that same role and even if you're exhausted or you're not feeling well, you still got to get up there and the show must go on. So they do have a lot of resilience. Marin, you've mentioned Hayes Gordon a couple of times. Yes, He um, was the founder of the Ensemble Theatre. He came out from America and he had all the American techniques of acting and it was called the Stanislavski Method that he was teaching. So he was in a lot of big musicals and all the actors in the musicals with him wanted to learn from him. So he presented a couple of performances in Camaray Children's Library with all the students way back in 1958 and that was the opening of the Ensemble Theatre. They started out in the Camaray Children's Library and then in 1960 they moved to the current premises of the ensemble in the old boat shed which is at Careening Cove in Kirribilli. It's absolutely beautiful and so the theatre is now 60 years old. Wow and such an establishment now in Sydney. 
Yes, it's been around for such a long time. Hayes was the first founding director and he lasted 27 years at the helm. Then my mother took over, Sandra Bates, and she was there for the next 30 years. And now Mark Kilmurray has taken over and he's been there for five. So I think we're 62 years old now. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And you grew up in a family steeped in acting. Your lovely father, Peter, even though he was an accountant, he just loved the theatre. He loved your singing. He was often at your shows. Both always. <laughs> always, yes, and at your mother's shows. He was like an opening night guest at every single show that my mother directed, but then he would sneak into the theatre. All the staff would know him, the box office staff, and he would sneak in it to an 11am matinee and the front of house staff would just let him in and sit in the front row because he was a bit deaf. And he just would love to watch a show five or six times during its run. So he absolutely adored the theatre, even though he had nothing to do with it. <laughs> he was a great singer, though, and played piano growing up. So that's where I developed my love of music was through my dad. But my mum, obviously, being the artistic director of the ensemble, even though she was a pharmacist initially, she just took to theatre like a duck to water. And once she was taught by Hayes how to act, she then moved into directing and assisted him on a number of productions before he then retired and handed over the reins to her. So, yeah, I've had theatre in my life. I remember running around the ensemble when it was the old boat shed and it was in the round. And so we used to run around under the seats with the water rats and play games because I was one of four children. And so mum would take us to the theatre while she had classes or she was directing and um, the four of us would run around under the seats and think it was hilarious. So I remember being at the ensemble as an eight, nine, ten-year-old. So I've heard you speak often about the aims of theatre to entertain, educate and challenge the way we think. I think when a cast gets into a rehearsal room with a director, they decide what the playwright intended. So the very first day of rehearsals is always what was the playwright's intention with this script? And so they might spend half a day discussing what was intended and that's often then the result of when an audience leaves the theatre, they come out with that playwright's intention, which we call it the spine. What's the spine of the show? And so it might be a message, it might be to be kinder to your neighbour or, you know, it might just be a message that the playwright's trying to get through the script, through the story that they've created. We tell stories on stage and then the audience go away with something new. You know, they, they are entertained or they are challenged or they are educated in some area that they didn't know You know, a family might be presented where there's a gay character or there's a, a child who's being bullied at school. Or a refugee. Yeah, or a refugee's story. And then we might not know enough about that area. And then you come away thinking, I'm not going to let my child be bullied or I'm going to look after those refugees. And so, yeah, it does educate and it does hopefully change the way you think about something. That's how it can be so empowering. Is theatre in the round the earliest form of theatre? I think it was. I'm I must say I'm not 100% sure, but certainly back in Greek days in the Bamford theatres, they were in the round. Yes. And the actors all had to perform, come on from the side and just perform to huge crowds. So the ensemble was created in the round, which we haven't had any other theatres in the round in this country since. So we did change it to a three-sided theatre, so it's a thrust stage, um, maybe 40-odd years ago. Uh, It was just to get more people into the building. (laughs) 
and easier for the actors to get in and out and create better sets. It's hard to have a good set if you're in the round because, you know, a cupboard will block a whole section of the audience. (laughs) (laughs) And as you say about storytelling, in my first degree as a social anthropologist, storytelling is the earliest form of performing that I think humanity reveals from the earliest cave paintings of the hunt and where we see the story of the hunt, whether it's the plan for the hunt or the story of how the hunt went and the success of the hunt. So it seems like it's an inbuilt human need to tell stories and to hear stories. And that's what theatre's all about. It's like what a good song is about, telling a good story. But a show, a, a play or a musical is telling a great story and then humans love to witness that and that's why they love to hear the stories that are told on the stage. Because we get inspired by those stories. For instance, would have seen that hunt and the success of the hunt inspired us to how we could be part of that hunt and kill that animal or we learn from the story how we can do that. I mean, look at traditional Indigenous cultures. They all had to learn how to hunt in order to stay alive and feed themselves. So Yeah, and pass down the stories from generation to generation, which is what you're involved in. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like stories often are about journeys. And in our lives, we're all on a journey, of course, and journeying within our journey of life. And so we hear the stories of other people's journeys and we might learn from those stories how to fulfil certain achievements or plans that we might have in our lives and how to make that story work. I remember my mother as a director always saying that people are interested in the character's journey. And so even though in play it might not say what this character was going on to do after the play, she would always give the character a history and then a journey. And so you can relate to that character by watching their journey. And everyone's on a journey. You're right. (laughs) You mentioned that the majority of your audience are currently older. But do you think that with shows like Hamilton, connecting with the younger generation will bring a new wave of demographic to the theatre? Well, I always hope that more young people will come to the theatre. I think the thing that tends to stop them coming is probably the expense You know, they can't afford to go. And young people tend to make decisions about what they want to do spontaneously. And so if they see an ad in the paper for a show that they might want to go, they'll buy a ticket and go that night or they'll go the following week. They're less of the attitude that they're going to prepay for a whole year of theatre, which is what Ensemble and Belvoir and STC are used to. They have subscribers who, you know, want to pay a year in advance to see all five plays or all seven plays in a season and book their tickets way in advance. Young people just don't want to do that these days. They're on their phones, you know. They can book something straight away and go straight away. So theatres have to adapt to the young people's way of booking things. Yes, psychology's changing. I think, you know, the reason that theatre's still around is because people want the live aspect. don't want to just only watch it on TV or film. They want that experience, that lived experience of mm. being there in the theatre and whatever the performance is when it's live. It would make them feel alive. I know it makes me feel alive more so when I'm witnessing you singing live. Or yeah, that rather than just listening to a recording. Yeah. And I think with theatre, rather than film and TV, it's such a visceral experience. It's just right there in front of you and you can see the actor's face changing. You can feel the sweat on their face if they're dancing, you know, and if you're in the front row, you might get wet when they spin around, that kind of thing. 
it's a live performance. It's not something that everybody can see. You're in that audience on your own that particular night and you're getting an individual experience and people love that. Absolutely. Marin, you have your own radio show of music on Sunday afternoons. I do. I started about 18 months ago on FM 99.3, which is a community station in Chatswood. And I felt that it was a way of giving back to the community. And when I started, I thought that I'd be doing interviews with directors and actors and playwrights and promoting shows that are on around Sydney. But during COVID times, obviously, there hasn't been anything on. And so I basically just tried to entertain my audiences by playing lots of different music and I got onto the idea of having a different theme each week. So some of the themes I've had over the last 18 months are things like having a girl's or boy's name in a title of a song or songs about the ocean or rivers or highway songs, breakup songs, songs about seasons, love songs, songs about friendship, chill songs, covers, songs that tell stories just like plays do, country playlist, the psychedelic 60s I had one week, that was a hoot. Um, all Australian artists, acoustic songs. I did a sax playlist of all the best sax solos. I did the greatest riffs, show tunes by movie stars. I did the power of love. I did what's cooking, songs about cooking, <laughs> colours, feeling good, lazy Sunday, cried out loud, saddest songs you've ever heard. <laughs> Um, songs of protest, songs about the environment, Christmas songs, days of the week, mother and daughter songs. So it's really fun to come up with a theme each week. And then I post it on Facebook and I get all sorts of people making requests of songs that fit that theme. And then if I like the songs that they've chosen, I'll put them in my playlist. And yeah, I get good feedback from the audiences. And so I just think it's a fun thing to do. And again, it's an experience. You know, when I listen to your shows, I feel like I'm there as well, not in the same way as the theatre, but I'm having an experience, a lived experience in the moment that you're taking me on, like the spring show. You know, I just was so uplifted. I felt the energy of spring and the beauty and the joy and the, you know, new life. And Yeah, well, there are some fabulous songs around the theme of spring. And so each week I just think about what, might affect me that week and what's happening you know like the Elvis tribute special was on an anniversary of his death I just think yeah I try and find uplifting songs rather than sad songs you know if you did all breakup songs it's pretty sad and you know but there are so many songs out there with so many stories to tell and on so many different things I mean the, the week I did songs about rivers you wouldn't believe how many songs have river in the title Moon River. I mean, I got more than 50 in my playlist and I can only play about 25 songs in the two hours. So I usually have more songs than I need to choose from and then I just choose the best ones that I'd like to hear. (laughs) (laughs) So what is it that we're getting from hearing live or recorded music? What are we getting when we're hearing your radio show that's different from theatre? I mean, yes, the experience is not all of us there together live, we're remote, but it's still affecting us psychologically. Well, when I was taught how to be a broadcaster, they told me to smile and also to pretend you're in your lounge room and you're just speaking with one friend rather than speaking with a huge audience, which would be a bit scary if you thought of how many people are actually listening out there and you're trying to talk to them all. So I took that on board and I always try and have a smile on my face when I'm talking and then I like to just pretend I'm chatting to a great friend. And that really helps as a broadcaster to make it sound like you're enjoying yourself. And that's what people want to hear. They don't want to hear someone who's grumpy and sad. 
No. The psychological experience of hearing your radio show or hearing and seeing you singing live is different but so similar to seeing live theatre. Well, they're all different aspects of entertainment and the media. You know, obviously there's radio, there's television, there's film, and then there's live theatre. So it's all aspects of performance. You're helping us to feel our feelings, I think. It's like I heard on the radio yesterday that someone, a journalist, said that a piece of music filled her with joy. And it's like music and theatre can fill us with these feelings. They can arouse feelings in us. They can take us to these places on journeys. I mean, people have favourite songs and they have a favourite song because it affected them in a way at a particular time. And then there are songs that make you feel immediately what you were doing when you first heard it. And so it is an experience. For instance, you know, a song that might be played at someone's funeral. You'll always remember that song. You'll always remember that person when you hear that song because it was played at that funeral or at someone's wedding. You know, it's always going to be your wedding song, isn't it? And when you hear it on the radio, oh, my God, I danced to that at my wedding. You know, people love that, that they can reference the time that they first heard a song or a time that that song was used really importantly in their life and then it becomes an important song for them. And it evokes the same or similar feelings. It takes you back to that experience in that moment, like the smell of Christmas trees. Absolutely. takes you back to Christmas memories. Yes, and I find music is such a joyous thing in people's lives and I would hate to live without music. It's just... I mean, some people just have the radio going all day and listen or play songs in their house all day and other people just have silence. I find it, I love to put music on. As a writer, I mostly have silence, but when I play your show on a Sunday afternoon, it takes me to somewhere else. It's amazing. It just transports me. Yeah. Well, I know my daughter has music going before she goes to sleep. You know, she'll have the radio on beside her or Spotify playlist or whatever, and it helps her go to sleep. I find that too distracting. I really can't fall asleep to music. But some people just do love having music on all the time. And do you think there's a difference between men and women, children and adults, who find that they use or enjoy theatre and music and other performing arts differently? Do, do we have different needs of performing I, arts? I, I think, I mean, the performing arts is there for everyone to enjoy, old, young and male, female. I find that with theatre we tend to find that women buy the tickets and drag their partners along. Um, but the men do enjoy the shows just as much. But uh, there's often groups of women that will come and see a play. I think men connect more from an entertainment perspective. If they can find something funny, you know, they love comedies. Whereas women tend to listen to the story more and find more in the story and value. But there are women who love a comedy too. <laughs> Do you think that's a very Australian thing? You know, in Australia, we have very much a footy and sport culture for men. It's still quite a traditional society. Definitely. And of course, women and children go to sport. And um, but I do find that our audience is filled with more women than men and maybe uh, 60, 50 plus less young people are going to the theatre, which is sad. I think it's great if you can encourage young people to start with theatre when they're school age and then they can learn from it and realise what a valuable thing it is in their lives, arts and culture. Same with painting, same with music. If they learn from a very young age that it's something that they're going to enjoy, then they're much more likely to become a regular theatre goer 
or visit exhibitions or paint themselves or play a musical instrument. So I, I just think the arts is so valuable in everybody's lives that it's underrated and underfunded. Yes, and creativity is what psychologists use, psychiatrists use to help heal people. It's a critical part of recovery of addiction, for instance. Absolutely, how wonderful. Performing arts seems to be the essence of resilience, adaptability, flexibility. If we look at how plays have evolved and how theatres have had to adapt, for example, recently with COVID, as you said, you're adapting so significantly Mm. in order to bring plays back in. Look, people love to see old plays, the classics, you know, Shakespeare plays are continually shown and played all around the world and it helps educate but people also do love to see a contemporary show you know and that's why there are playwrights still writing new stories and I think if you can have a nice balance of the old and the new certainly theatre is here to stay and I think people do love to see you know something like St Joan or an old play brought to life with new actors or just brand new stories that help them see what's going on in the world. Yeah, it's wonderful when we see those old classics made so relevant. The themes, it's always because the theme is still relevant. A hundred years on, there are still battles, there are still families squabbling. Yes, yes, and all the psychological things that we learn from those classics. It's always great when a theatre company mixes up the program and have some fabulous classics mixed in with great contemporary works. It must be exciting from your point of view to see the contemporary works and to wonder which ones will become classics. We love that and I love the fact that Mark Kilmurray at the Ensemble is commissioning new playwrights to write new works and I think next year we've got three brand new plays, Australian plays, that have never been performed before. It's pretty exciting and one that we did last year, the the Appleton Ladies Potato Race, um, is now going on a national tour next year. Uh, And that was written by Melanie Tate, who's an Australian writer, and she is a broadcaster on ABC as well. And it was all written from her own personal experience about a potato race in a country town. Wow. And uh, how the women were not paid as much as the men Mm. in the winnings. And so she fought to get the women to receive the same amount. And it's a wonderful story, and it's now going all around Australia. So that'll be a new classic, (laughs) we hope. How amazing. So deciding to pursue performing as a career, and you said earlier on that you married very young and you married an actor and so it was a decision to be the breadwinner. Do you ever have any regrets that you didn't fully pursue performing? Um, Not really. I mean, I did a communications degree as well and I do find that most of the actors I know have to have other jobs because there's just not enough work in Australia for the number of actors that that are out there. 99% of any actors are out of work at any one time. Goodness. There's 1% of the jobs for the number of actors that are out there. So I realised straight away that I really didn't want to be going for those job interviews every week and auditioning against the likes of Kate Raison, who was in my class. I just thought, you know, my talent could be used elsewhere. And being behind the scenes, I'm really happy. I, I know that how difficult it is to be an actor and I'm really happy to be working with actors and directors and playwrights to make their lives easier. And so doing casting, doing publicity, helping them get promoted has always been really fun and 
uh, I think my job has always been about the relationships that I have with the media and with the directors and the actors and, and the playwrights. And so, you know, I can do my best work behind the scenes. I think you have it all, Maren. <laughs> you do a bit of everything. It's kind of fun as I age to find things that I really love to do and then just amalgamate them all in my life. Absolutely. I often forget that my early career potential was as an opera singer and I can really relate with what you're saying. I trained at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and I sat many exams and a Steadfords and public competitions and I'll never forget how I deliberated very carefully away from a singing career and even though it was a major passion for me, I moved away. You probably did what I did. That The life of an opera singer or an actor is terrifying. I can totally relate to what you're saying because when I went back on stage 25 years after I had given up acting, it was quite terrifying, very challenging, scary. Having David Williamson in the audience, I actually dried. I forgot my lines. It was awful. <laughs> Mark Lee gave me the best advice. He said, if you forget your lines, just keep talking in oh. character and someone from the cast will rescue you. <laughs> so I was in that three-page monologue and in the middle of it and I just dried, so I just kept talking. I kept saying, my life is so terrible. <laughs> I can't cope ever since the death of my daughter. You know, I just kept talking and then finally he rescued me. I was so relieved. But I was so glad never to have to do that again. It, it it's, um, takes a certain person to be able to perform and um, I just decided it was too hard. <laughs> it's, it's like we say in organisational psychology, it's all about the fit and I think if you're a born performer, if performing, as you say, is something you need to do for the accolade of the audience or the engagement with the audience, then I can see why you'd stay with it and move in and out of it because it's part of who you are. It's the right fit. Yeah, well, uh, Tara Maurice, an actress who worked with us at the ensemble, once said to me, she can always tell the actors who are going to make it and who are going to stay with it because it's just a passion inside them that's burning that they can't get out it's just, and she's one of those, you know, she was in Strictly Ballroom, the movie, and she's been acting ever since. Not in huge roles, she's not hugely well-known, but she continues to act because it's a passion that she can't burn out. And I admire people with that kind of passion and that kind of strength and dedication and tenacity. And in organisational psychology, we say that passion is actually engagement and engagement is what organisations want from their employees. So Absolutely. it's the same thing. Yeah. You're saying the same thing about entertainment, the world of entertainment that we say in organisational psychology. It's been fascinating to hear how similar psychology and the theatre and performing arts really are, how interchangeable and related the domains are. It's been surprising to me too. Thank you so much, Merrin. You've been such a wonderful, delightful guest. We've learnt so much from you. It's been so fun and interesting. If listeners want to find out more about The Ensemble and about your radio show... How I can tell you. Um, the Ensemble Theatre is obviously a Sydney-based theatre, but it seats 220 people and we're in Kirribilli. And uh, the website's ensemble.com.au. And then if you want to hear me on the radio, it's FM 99.3 on the dial in Sydney. Or you can go www.northsideradio.com.au. And I'm on Sunday afternoons between four and six. And my show is called In the Spotlight. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Marin. It's been delightful to be your guest. Thanks. 
To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me.